Dennis Rainey says there's something powerful a wife can do to build up her husband. No matter how competent and confident mm -hmm. a man looks, it does not matter. Uh, there isn't a man who doesn't need his wife's steady and certain words of affirmation and belief. And Dennis's wife, Barbara, models that kind of encouragement. In the end, no matter what, I believe in you. I believe that God is at work in your life and in our marriage. And I believe that God is gonna see us through this and I'm gonna be with you there to the bitter end. Welcome to Ever Thine Home with Barbara Rainey, a podcast dedicated to helping you experience God in your home. Thanks for listening. So are you a letter writer? A quick check of the United States Postal Service website shows some interesting trends. In the past decade, there's been a steady decline in the volume of first-class mail the USPS delivers. They've gone from 72.5 billion letters and packages in 2011 down to 52.6 billion in 2020. So that's a 27% drop. And of course, it's reflective of the myriad of new ways we have to communicate with one another. But letters have been around for a long time and they still remain a great way to pass along meaningful ideas. In these days leading up to Mother's Day, we're taking a closer look at some of the wisdom Barbara passed on to her daughters in a book called Letters to My Daughters, The Art of Being a Wife. Barbara explains how the idea for the book came about. When our oldest son was engaged to be married, his fiance came to me and said, you know, I would really love to hear some encouragement from you about being a wife. And I thought, wow, if she opened the door, then I'm going to gently and cautiously walk through that door. And so I wasn't sure exactly how to go about doing it because we all lived in different places. So it wasn't possible to take her out for coffee and have a conversation. So I decided I would start writing some letters just to share some of the lessons that I had learned over the years in being a wife, just by way of encouragement. And here are some things that I learned and maybe this will help you. We're talking about the early 2000s. So Barbara's letters were in emails. She copied more than just her soon-to-be daughter-in-law on those emails. So our oldest, Ashley, who was already married, and then our son, Samuel, had married the same summer. We traded about, I sent, I'll rephrase that, I sent about a dozen emails total. And, you know, I don't know how much of it was that they didn't know me that well, and so there wasn't a lot of response, which I understood. I mean, you know, we're talking about subjects about marriage, and this is your mother-in-law, what do you say? So I didn't get much feedback, and so they kind of dried up. And then when our daughter Rebecca got married in 2005, I went and dug them all out and sent them to her sort of as a batch, a couple of them at a time. And, um, and then that really was the end of it after that, and the email version. I think what's interesting about this is the whole idea came from a couple of sources. One was uh, a book that was famous and very popular back when Barbara and I were college students by Charlie Shedd. Uh -huh. And it was called Letters to Karen. But there was another kind of, um, I don't know, birthplace of this idea of sending letters that was a part of Barbara's family. When I was uh, growing up, I remember my mother used to anxiously look for this large legal size envelope that would come in the mail probably every couple of months. 
She had married my dad, and they had moved two or three states away from where she grew up, and it was a place where she knew no one. And although she developed friends, there were no family members anywhere near. And so she and her her mother and some other relatives in the family and friends had this exchange of letters that were all handwritten that went by the Postal Service, and it was called a round robin. So my mother would write her letter, put it in the envelope, and send it on its way, where the next person would read my mother's letter and all the other letters that were in it. She would take out her original letter and put in a new letter and send the packet on its way. And it would just make this circle between these six or eight women that were a part of this group because nobody got on the phone and talked for fun in those days. You only used the phone for emergencies or business or important things. You didn't just get on to chat. So letter writing was the only way that you really kept up with people who lived far away. And so they had this letter exchange that they passed around. And I just remember very vividly that every time that letter came, that packet with all those messages from home, touches with her family and friends that she didn't get to see very often. She would get a cup of coffee and sit down and she relished those letters. She read them and just absorbed all that she could out of those communications from friends that she loved and cared about and missed deeply. And so that became a way for her to stay in touch with those friends. You know, it's interesting now in the present age of uh, social media and we have access to so much that the art of letter writing, I mean, a really good, thoughtful letter. In fact, I have back on my desk uh, a letter that was given to me by Steve Green, uh, who is the president and CEO of Hobby Lobby, that he had obtained that was written by Thomas Jefferson during his presidency. And it's just interesting to have a copy of a letter that's Uh, over 200 years old, and to think about the words being crafted, how thoughtful it was. And uh, I think there's a need to recapture that both personal side, but also just the thoughtful side, the contemplative side of, you're facing some issues, let me step into your life and provide some guidance in a personal way uh, for you. The letters Barbara answers in her book are representative of the many questions she's received over the years. And some of those questions get back to the fundamental differences between husbands and wives. For example, one letter in the book reads like this. Sometimes I get tired of being discouraged by all the unexpected things that I have to deal with that come from the way my husband lives life. It's not just that we're different, It's like I think if I didn't have him, sometimes life would be easier. It's kind of nice when he's out of town for a few days. Well, Barbara says those kinds of thoughts really aren't that unusual. Well, I think there are those moments when women do feel that way because the differences never go away. That's the first chapter in the book. And I write in the book that it's the first and most lasting adjustment to marriage because the differences never go away. Even though I'm used to things that he brings to our world, his personality, his the way he approaches life and his maleness, it's very different. And so I think what this question is saying is that sometimes when a husband travels, there's feels a little bit of a, oh, I can do things the way I want to do things. I don't have to be just thinking about 
what I would like to do and how's this going to make him feel? How's he going to respond to this? I can just do what I want to do. It's not unique to wives. Husbands can identify too. Still, for all the times we enjoy a sense of independence, healthy couples also understand that when they're apart, something's missing. We are complete in one another, and marriage does complete that which is lacking. I mean, God says the two shall become one. And so there is a sense in which you can kind of relax about some things when your husband or your wife is out of town. But there is that realization that life isn't the same without him in it. So it makes you miss one another and appreciate those differences, those things that the other person brings that are so very uh, contradictory at times, but it, it is for good. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the very essence of marriage it goes back to Genesis where it says, it was not good that man be alone. So it says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And I think we get married because there's something lacking in our lives. And that, that something is a person. It's mm-hmm. the completeness of a husband and a wife in a marriage relationship designed by God. And the two are asked to deny themselves and to defeat isolation and not grow into an unhealthy relationship where you long for the times when you're gonna be separated. You need to keep the relationship alive and not forget why you married the other person in the first place. God brought you together. You need to get on with it and you need to learn how to embrace the differences. It's okay to have a break occasionally, but the goal of marriage is being together and becoming one and allowing God to do his redemptive work in our lives. Ultimately, what marriage is all about is about two imperfect people learning how to love one another within the commitment of marriage. Uh You're going to school with God teaching you from the Bible. And I'd have to say, I didn't understand that when I enrolled in this course called marriage. But looking back over four decades of marriage, I'd have to say, I know more about love because of marriage than any Mm -hmm. other relationship in my life. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's easy for Dennis and Barbara to say. They, They both love God and they want to please him. If you only knew my husband and there really can be some serious, dark issues that affect marriage deeply, whether it's some kind of substance abuse or pornography addiction or emotions that are out of control or all of the above. It can leave a wife wondering, what am I supposed to do? Well, there that's a very uh, complex question because there are so many uh, levels and degrees of, of what constitute negatives and difficult things in a relationship. So let me answer it two ways. One is... Any wife has to start by looking at herself and saying, okay, God, am I accepting the man that you put in my life? Am I giving thanks for him in his strengths and in his weaknesses? Am I looking to you to do the transforming work? Because you even said in your question, a woman says, what can I do? How do I relate to him and help transform him? Well, it's not the wife's job. And I think we so easily get caught up in thinking that it's our responsibility to fix him, to change him. We do that with our kids. We're always helping our kids and helping a husband is different than helping your kids. But it starts by her attitude and her perspective and her 
belief in God and His sovereignty and His ability to work. So it starts with where she's focusing her eyes. Is she looking at all the negative stuff in his life to such a degree that she's totally forgotten all the good that there is? So my first challenge is to her, are you open to to God being at work? Have you totally given up on Him? Are you giving thanks for your relationship the way it is? And then the other side is, if it really is indeed very, very difficult things that are beyond a woman's responsibility to deal with, um, you may need to see a counselor, you may need to get someone, a pastor or someone who is wise and skilled to intervene, to help you, to coach you, to guide you, uh, find an older woman who can be your mentor to help give you perspective. One of the things that's true about us as women, and I had a conversation with my daughter just yesterday on the phone about this, is that it's so easy for us because of our emotional makeup to get very overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. So a woman who's married and is is discouraged by her relationship with her husband, she can get so overwhelmed to the point that she just doesn't see clearly. And that's why a mentor is so helpful. Someone who can look at it objectively and say, you know, it's probably not as bad as you think it is. Here are, let me give you one or two practical suggestions that might make a difference for you. Because we do lose perspective and we do, we just get all out of sorts. And so it's very common for us as women to get discouraged with our marriages because we're just discouraged about life in general. So check your heart, find someone to help you, find a mentor, find another woman who can speak objectively into your life and say, it may not be as bad as you think it is. And here are some things you can try. And what I'd say to my daughters is I'd say, do you remember when you get up in the morning and see your mom reading the Bible? Uh, What was that symbolic of? It was that your mom was teachable, that she was trying to meet with God, and ultimately that her hope was in God. And so the woman who's listening to us right now, who's lost hope, she's got to have a spiritual thermometer check. How's your relationship with God? You got to be reminded of who he is, how he operates in this imperfect world that we live in, and what he's calling us to do, which is live and walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say to the moms who are listening who've got a house full of kids or even maybe one or two kids, but it feels like a full house to you. I did not get up every morning and read my Bible. My kids didn't see me doing that every day. And I I just don't want anybody listening to think that I was that woman that, got up every morning and read my Bible. I I mean, there were there were weeks that I would go by and not read my Bible in the morning. Um, I would talk to God and I would pray and I would try to catch snippets of the Bible here and there in different places. But I was pretty overwhelmed and pretty um, buried with kids and with life. So yes, I totally agree with what you just said, Dennis, that it is absolutely crucial that your hope is in God and in no place else. Your hope can't be in your husband because he will fail. That's a given. So put your hope in God and keep it there and do all that you can to maintain that. But I just don't want anybody to feel like there's this standard of, I have to get up and read my Bible every morning before my kids are up. If you can do that, great. I couldn't do that and I failed miserably many times, but my hope remained in Christ for the most part. And there was a proverb I was thinking about as uh, I was thinking about our listeners today who who were going to hear Barbara on this subject. It's uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, keep your heart 
with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And um, you may not be able to get in the Bible every day, um, I'm, and I'm glad you said that, just to remove this mythical phantom mm-hmm. that exists of the super spiritual mom. And I'm glad you mentioned a mentor or a friend or even a counselor if things really go south or to keep them from going south. Someone that you can lean into and spill out your emotions and, and safety and talk about it, not just being negative, but but trying to find someone who can coach you out of the ditch that you may be in. And that's what church is all about. That's what the, the, the community of faith of Christ followers ought to be about. We ought to be meeting each other in our, our ditches and saying, you know what? It's safe. We're all broken. There is nobody who's got it all together. But, uh, but to, to maybe dig in with a group of women into a book like this and decide we're going to get real with each other. We're going to get honest, but um, your heart needs to know who it is that you serve, who is your hope, and you need to cultivate that. Barbara's book is Letters to My Daughters, The Art of Being a Wife. And for a limited time, it's available at a discounted price at everthinehome.com. Now, we've been talking about the differences and difficulties in marriage in a sort of negative light can be really hard, but Dennis Rainey points out those trials and bumpy patches can also be valuable tools in God's hands. I don't know what you you would compare marriage to that teaches you how to love, that instructs you in how to sacrifice for another person, to um, care for, to cherish, to nourish, and call you away from yourself and force. I mean, if you're gonna do marriage God's way, It is the greatest discipleship tool that has ever been created in the history of the universe. It demands that both a husband and a wife pick up their cross, follow Christ, deny themselves, and ask God, okay, God, what do you want me to do? The Bible actually has a lot to say to husbands and wives, but sometimes God's descriptions and instructions sound archaic or even demeaning to modern ears. Like, for example, when God said he was creating Eve, the first wife, to be a helper for Adam, the first husband. Barbara explains there's nothing negative about a wife being her husband's helper. It is a very noble assignment that God has given us. It's equally noble, I think, to the calling that God has put on a man's life, too. And what makes it even better is that together... Marriage is a high and holy calling. It says that in scripture. It also says that it's a mystery. And I think that's the part that we wish God hadn't said about it because it would be nice if it was a little bit more black and white, more obvious. But God says it's a mystery. And God is an artist. God is an author. God didn't make robots. And so figuring this out, this uniqueness, this relationship that Dennis and I have that's unlike anybody else's relationship on the planet, the ingenuity of God to create these little duos all over the planet that represent him, that are a picture of Christ in the church, all of that mystery is profound and baffling. And we wish sometimes that marriage was a whole lot easier, but it illustrates that it is a very high and noble calling. We think it's drudgery. We think it's dispensable and it's not. In the book that Barbara has written called Letters to My Daughters, The Art of Being a Wife, you quote 
Mike Mason. And speaking of mysteries, he wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage. And this comes from that book. He says this, love convinces a couple that they are the greatest romance that has ever been, that no two people have ever loved as they do, and that they will sacrifice absolutely anything in order to be together. And then I love the conclusion to the statement. It says, and then marriage, ask them to prove it. Well, that's what's at stake. You got this noble relationship that wasn't created by man. It was created by Almighty God. His image is stamped all over a marriage that seeks to follow his blueprints for what he wants us to do. He's trying to teach us how to love, how to love sacrificially, how to give up our lives on behalf of another. And uh, you're never gonna be able to do it if you try to have it your way. Well, if that kind of terminology is new to you, that marriage is about more than just two people falling in love and spending some money on a wedding and making promises in front of family and friends, understanding that it is more than that should change the way a wife thinks about her husband. Barbara illustrates this from the world of photography. Anybody who has ever used a camera that has a lens that you turn so that you can focus understands the principle that the person who's holding the camera chooses what's going to be in that image. You can choose a broad panorama and you can get as much in that frame as you can get. Or you may choose to tighten that zoom lens and focus on somebody's eyes only. So you've got great choice as the photographer in what you're going to get in that lens of the camera. And the same is true in marriage. I have complete control over what people know about my husband. So if I'm talking about Dennis and I talk about his faults or I talk about how crummy it is that he just doesn't ever do this and I just think it's terrible that he doesn't ever do that. Anybody who hears that description that I just made of him will think of him that way. When they think of him, they're gonna remember that. But on the other hand, if I choose to leave that out, of the description and instead I choose to describe for my friends or my small group or wherever I'm talking about him. And I say, you know, one of the things I appreciate so much about Dennis is that he really makes our family a priority. Yeah, he travels. Yeah, sometimes he has to stay late and work. Um, sometimes he's gone on the weekends, but I know that his heart is to make our family a priority. That's focusing the lens of my camera on what is good and what is right about my husband. And if he knows that I'm saying that about him, he's going to want to live up to that expectation. Now, that might sound dishonest to a wife, like she's supposed to flippantly airbrush away the blemishes in her husband. Okay, and I would say to her, how does God see you? Is God pointing out to you the hundreds of things that you do wrong every day? Mm, I don't think so. He's very gentle and very gracious, and he shows us one thing at a time that we do wrong. And I would rather focus on what he does right than what he does wrong, because when I focus on what he does wrong, and I have done that, all I can see are the things that he does wrong. They grow and they just become these huge things and I become obsessed with everything that's wrong and everything he's not doing that's right. And that's not fun. I don't like that about me. I don't want him to be focusing on all my weaknesses and all my flaws. I don't want him talking about my weaknesses and flaws to other people because I don't like them. I don't want to be known for what is wrong with me. I want to be known for what I do well and what I do right. And so the same is true for him. 
In the New Testament, Jesus said it this way, the words coming out of your mouth start in your heart attitudes. So Barbara's advice isn't for a wife to somehow live in denial, is to focus her lens on the positive characteristics in her husband and leave the transformation work up to the Lord. That doesn't mean a wife can't lovingly confront her husband, but it does mean she's careful to examine her motives first. I remember years and years ago when we were in a new church that we were a part of. It was a fairly small church, and we had this community group of other couples that we met together every couple of weeks. And I remember standing in a small group of maybe three, maybe four of us, and this wife started talking about her husband, and she was talking negatively about her husband. And I'll never forget that uncomfortable feeling that all of us in that little tiny circle felt. We just felt kind of ouch, like, ooh, that that hurts. I, I don't know that I want to hear that about your husband. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw him standing not that far away. And I think he heard what she said. And I just, I've never forgotten that picture, even though it was probably 30 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, but it was a long time ago, because I saw what the power of her words did. I saw what it did to me. It made me as a listener uncomfortable. It made me wonder about him as a man. And then when I saw that he heard, it was it was like an ice pick to his heart. And I realized how powerful our words are as wives. So my whole intention in in what I share in this chapter about this is to help women understand that your words are very, very significant. And those who hear them are going to be influenced by what we say. There's a, there's a proverb that is uh, so applicable here. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Mm -hmm. And those who love it will eat its fruits. So you literally have the opportunity to use your tongue like a paintbrush to paint a positive picture or like an ice pick to tear another person down. And to the woman who's listening to us, or for that matter, a man who may be listening in right now, if, if you're a critical person, if you're negative, you need to ask God to do a work in your soul. You know, no one wants to be in the corner of an attic with a cranky woman or a cranky man who is bitter and negative and all they can do is find fault. That's not who you want to grow old with. What you need to ask is you need to ask God to do a work in your soul and to help release you from being critical of your husband or your, your, your wife and find a way to begin to focus on, as Barbara's calling uh, women to do here, to focus on that which is positive in their spouse. Why you married them in the first place and what you like about them. And brag on your wife, brag on your husband in, in front of the kids. Most of us women, when we first get married, we marry this guy because we believe in him. We think he's the greatest. Most women marry with those thoughts, those feelings, those emotions. And I think that what happens is that when we do get disillusioned and we do find discouragements and we butt heads because we're different, um, that belief can come down with it. And so then that's when it becomes a choice. So in the beginning, it was real easy for me to believe in him because I just did believe in him. It's why I married him. But then there become those times farther into the relationship when belief becomes a choice. So rather than expressing 
Uh, and it's not that I don't express fear. It's not that I don't express anxiety because I express plenty of that. But the bottom line is, in the end, no matter what, I believe in you. I believe that God is at work in your life and in our marriage. And I believe that God is going to see us through this and I'm going to be with you there to the bitter end. And what I'd want a woman to know is no matter how competent and confident mm -hmm. a man looks, uh, whether he's young or whether he's older, it does not matter. Uh, there isn't a man who doesn't need his wife's steady and certain words of affirmation and belief. He needs it. I don't care if he says nothing to you when you say it. The words are sinking and soaking into his soul because there are not that many people in a lifetime. In fact, I'd ask the question, is there anyone who goes a lifetime with you and who believes in you all the way to the end? The answer is, who would it be? Who's gonna do that? That's the nature of marriage when you say, I take you till death do us part, for better, for worse, in riches and in and being poor. And um, uh, wow, it's it's the payoff. Mm -hmm. It's not always easy. I didn't we're not trying to paint up some kind of rosy picture here, but it is a necessity. It's not hard to think or say nice things about your husband when he's making great decisions. But Barbara says the rubber meets the road when he chooses to take you in a direction you don't think is best. There have been times, like for instance, driving in the car when uh, he would choose to go one way and I'm thinking, oh, I don't think that's the right way. And sure enough, it wasn't. That hasn't happened very often, but it's happened. Um, I remember one time earlier in our marriage when we were discussing a financial decision and I don't remember thinking it was a bad decision at the time, but um, it was a bad decision and it cost us financially. But regardless, of, it doesn't really matter if it's a big thing or a small thing because the choice is still the same in the end for a wife. And that is, even when he makes bad decisions, and he will, um, when he decides to do things that will cost you, and he will, will you still believe in him? Will you still trust God? Will you put your faith in God's sovereignty that God can turn this into good in his life? Maybe that's exactly what he needed to experience to grow in the way God wanted him to grow. And if you rail on him and if you criticize him and you tell him how stupid it was that he made that decision, he may not learn the lesson that God wanted for him and he may have to repeat it again. So the best thing that a wife can do is trust God, even when it's hard, and ask God to use it for good in their life and that God would use it to grow him in that area where he just blew it royally. Because men are gonna make big mistakes, but it's how we respond to that mistake that will make the difference in whether or not he benefits from it or he, he can't benefit from it because he's been beat up by his wife. This is not an easy message for a lot of listeners to hear. But I just want you to comment on why you decided to write a book that is called Letters to My Daughters to call them to the art, the biblical art of being a wife. Because you're calling them to mm -hmm. a high standard. Mm -hmm. These are our daughters and our daughters-in-law. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to do that? Well, I think our culture has lost the vision for what marriage can be, what it was intended to be. And yes, we've all seen 
countless examples of marriage done the wrong way. But that doesn't mean marriage is broken. It means the people are broken that are in it. And I want the next generation to understand that marriage is really worth working on. It is transformative. It's redemptive. It's holy. Um, there are so many good things about marriage, but we don't see those good things commonly in our culture. We see all the negatives. I tell the story about what would it be like if you went to the Louvre Museum in Paris with all these great, magnificent artworks? And what if while you were standing in line to get your ticket, there was an earthquake? And after you got your ticket, you walked in and half of these masterpieces were lying on the floor. There were still half of them on the wall. There were still statues and all these magnificent things around. What would your eyes be drawn to? Your eyes would be drawn to the tragedy, to the loss, to the broken pieces laying all over the floor. And I think that's a picture of our culture. We see all these wrecked marriages. We see these abused women. We see these lost men. We see the damaged children. And we just think, marriage is hopeless. Why should I even try? And what I want to do in this book is say, Look at what's on the wall. Look at what God has said. Look what God has designed. That is our goal. Don't get distracted by the broken pieces. It's tragic. It's wrong. It's sad. But the institution of marriage is still worthy. It's still worth striving for. And God didn't make a mistake when he made marriage. We're the ones who are messing it up. Just because people have failed, don't give up on what the Bible, the transcendent beauty and model of the scriptures and what it's calling us to be as human beings and to call us away from our selfishness, to call us to the biblical model of following Jesus Christ and training our kids to do the same. I'm gonna tell you something. There's a lot on the line in every marriage that's listening to us right now. Generations are on the line. Your children, the best picture of what they'll ever see apart from the scriptures of what a real marriage ought to be is your marriage. Mm -hmm. Even in its imperfections, it can display what Barbara's talking about, the nobility, the grandeur. And, and your kids will see something that they're gonna say, you know what? Mom and dad could have ended it, but they didn't. They experienced the redemption of Jesus Christ. And I want what they've got. When I get married, I want one of those. And I'm not going to settle for anything less. And the way they get it is by absorbing your teaching about Jesus Christ and following Him and deciding to make their parents' faith their own. But that means the parents need to have it first. Well, that passing of truth to the next generation is what Barbara Rainey models for us in her book, Letters to My Daughters. She offers counsel to young wives about what being a godly wife looks like. And for a limited time, the book is available for 20% off the regular price. For all the details, visit everthinehome.com. And while you're there, subscribe to Barbara's blog and you'll be able to read more great insights from Barbara. Again, it all starts at everthinehome.com. Well, thanks for listening today. Our prayer is that your marriage and your home will reflect the beauty of the gospel more and more with every passing day. Join us next time for Ever Thine Home with Barbara Rainey.